Sing out the jubilee with all the fire we can breathe. Oh my God, I love your skirt. Where'd you get it? Thanks. It was my mom's in the 80s. Just the fugliest looking skirt I've ever seen. Is that Mean Girls? Yeah. What? It's recording. Oh. So a couple of friends of the pod have their anniversary today and it got me thinking about marriage. And it got me thinking about this quote that someone said about us, just like how we have similar interests and vocation. There is nothing more admirable than when two people who see eye to eye keep house as man and wife, confounding their enemies and delighting their friends. That sounds great. Where's that from? The Odyssey. Oh, at least that's what this website's telling me. Sounds right. I went to public school. We didn't read any like classic books like that. Or we were supposed to, but I did not. (laughs) I liked it because it teases this feeling in marriage that you get like being a team and working towards something, a purpose bigger than you. Yeah, that's the whole point. So you saw that quote and wanted to honor our friends whose anniversary it is. Well, I was just thinking like today, specifically today has been hard. Not in our marriage, but because of some things within our marriage. Our kids. The baby did not sleep last night. No. (laughs) It felt like another newborn night. We're exhausted. And so it's hard. There have been several times today where I just wanted to crumble because it's hard. And he's going to be a year old in March. And it's been hard for most of that year now. But there is a saving grace, and it's what this quote is talking about, and it's like, at least I'm not doing this alone, and I'm doing this in pursuit of something bigger than the pain that I feel in the midst of sleep deprivation, long-term sleep deprivation. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, and that is our purpose in our marriage. Raising not just the next generation, but leading these young souls to the truth. Yeah. It's a huge responsibility in that takes you out of the momentary, oh, my eyes hurt because I haven't slept. There's this very online thing, and it's like, have you made your own people yet? (laughs) I've made my own people, and I'm their leader. It's funny, but it's also speaks to like the primal aspect of it. It's almost the best DIY project you could ever do. Kids. Why is that? I don't want to sound like a control freak because humans are born with their own personalities and their own destinies, but and their own souls, you get to help curate individuals, like contributors to society. What do they say? Abraham Lincoln had a mom. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. And the end product is a lot more impressive than a bookshelf. It's better than, you know, being able to take a bunch of international trips. And it's better than being able to say, oh, I got promoted at this job, this corporate job that I complain about 95% of the time. It's better than a lot of those things that people normally strive for. Yeah. And it's one of those things that, at least speaking for myself, it's hard to imagine that that would be true until you're in it. Like I remember before I was married to you, I didn't really think about, oh, it would be cool to have sons to raise as men or even just kids in general, nothing even that high. I agree. I think the same thing for marriage, though, too. I would not have ever imagined marriage has been like kids and that I have learned a lot about it as I've gone along and we did premarital counseling and still you learn a lot it's funny the the one thing i remember our premarital counselor who was christian the number one thing that she led with which i thought was so mundane and like a waste of time at the time 
was she said, she asked how we felt about dishes in the sink. She said, how long is too long to leave dishes in the sink? And you and I both at the time <laughs> were like, we don't really care about dishes in the sink. But now <laughs> it's one of the most common like bickering fights that we have. It's just she had the perspective of being able to say this is going to come up all the time because it's these everyday mundane things that become the centerpieces. It may be easy to overlook them at the start, but they're there every single time you come together. And those things are always going to be there through the good days and the bad days. And on the bad days, especially on the bad days, you need to know what it is that you're striving towards together so that you can more easily overcome these small tiffs. And not only that, it helps you push through the hard things knowing that I'm there or me knowing that you're there. And then that reminds me, we got our first listener feedback. And one of the things she said was there are so many single-headed households now, single moms out there, and they don't have that backstop. So when we were talking about people struggling to make ends meet even with two incomes. That's a whole other dynamic. And I think I saw this week too, there are more children in the United States with single parents than any other country in the world. Just that idea seems to be that we're an outlier performing a radical experiment on whether you can still be happy with alternative arrangements like that. So people always say that Nordic countries like Norway and Sweden and Switzerland, they have the happiest people I want to know, how are we measuring happiness? Right. Because in Denmark, they basically have a zero rate of Down syndrome anymore because they just abort all of their kids with Down syndrome. They have a universal screening program for Down syndrome. And if there are markers that your child that you have in utero has Down syndrome, then you abort it. So are you saying that aborting people leads to happiness or that we're measuring happiness i'm wrong. saying you're only measuring happiness from the people who make it out of the womb yeah. and survive their routine prenatal practices and so i'm sure there are other things like that so it's important to get our definitions straight when we're talking about what makes a person happy or what makes a society happy and i'm wondering why we have such high divorce rates comparatively speaking Maybe they weren't married before. That's another big statistic is that lots of these people were never married in the first place. Yeah. And Dave Ramsey talks about that a lot, right? The stages of life that you take, their particular order matters, whether you'll be impoverished or not. If you follow the steps of getting married and then having kids, that you're less likely to be impoverished. Whereas if you have kids before you're married, then you're more likely to be below the poverty line. Yeah, I think he was talking about research out of, I think it was AEI or the Brookings Institution, about the success sequence. And they talk about not getting married until you're out of high school and not having kids until you're married. And there was something else, too. But the chances that you'll end up in poverty after that are extremely low. And so it was kind of like, a what's the lowest common denominator advice we can give to people to avoid a life of misery? Now, there was something else that this makes me think about that I got in trouble from a lot of people for posting the other day, and it was Jordan Peterson. And in some, he said that marriage makes you mature, but the number one way to become fully mature the quickest is to have children because you need to have something that you are willing to submit your entire self to. I see why people would be annoyed by that. Well, can't you be mature without kids? And it reminds me of George Washington's farewell address. So he's going through what he did as president and the advice he has. 
to the nation moving forward. He gives advice about how to stay free and happy. And in one of the most famous parts of the speech, he says something to the effect of, we should only accept with trepidation or we should really not accept the idea that you can be good and moral without the support of religion. And so I think he had people like Thomas Jefferson in mind. Well, now you just made the people who weren't already mad about the kids and maturity thing mad with the religion thing. Well, but the <laughs> point being you can, theoretically, if you have the right education and the right upbringing and the right community, you can reject God and still theoretically... Where do those morals come from? Well, right. You reject the foundation of them, but you can still act out those moral conclusions without God. Yes, it's theoretically possible. But is that a safe ground for society? Like, can you just set that as the rule for everybody and think that it's going to work out? The thing is, that's not a rule, though. It's just, you're just miming at that point. Like, you don't have a playbook. If you're not living by what the Bible says and you're just living by what other people are doing, then when what other people are doing changes, you have no principle to be able to say, we have drifted from the path. Well, and I think that's why it is dangerous to entertain the idea that you can be good without at least a consensus for the ground of public morality. I yeah. think that's what George Washington was talking about. I agree with him in this case. See, and George Washington had a mom. How cool yeah. would it be to be like, hey, I'm Abraham Lincoln's mom. Okay, I guess this is episode four of Free State Podcast. We heard from some of you and we super appreciate all of the messages and notes that you guys are sending us. Several of you said that you loved it, that you identified with it and we like, this is kind of an intimate and vulnerable thing to do <laughs> to sit here and record these conversations and then like put them out into the ethers. Yeah. So thank you so much, so much for taking the time to listen to them. We've been talking about time lately, actually. I said I used to think that my love language was words of affirmation, but maybe even especially after kids, I think it's quality time now because that's such, that has become our most limited resource. So I know that when you give me 20 minutes, you're doing a lot for me. That speaks a lot because we don't just have 20 minutes to carve out of our day. So to those of you who are carving out more than 20 minutes to listen to our podcasts and maybe we're just friends or we're someone on the internet to you, it means a lot. And we did hear from some of you that there was some volume balance issues. We're going to try and work that out. I'll take the blame for that. I'm still a noob on the production end, but we're figuring it out. And so thank you for your patience in that, right? And for everyone joining us for the first time, you can send us a note at freestatepod at gmail.com. Or if you want a chance to be on the show, we had someone try to leave a voice message, but they said they didn't have enough space on their phone to download the Anchor app. But if you go to... That's like such a me thing to right. do. <laughs> Jace, help me. It says that my Gmail is 99% full. I'm pathetic. If you don't have that problem, you can go to anchor.fm slash freestate and leave us a voice message there, and we can splice that into the show and respond to you directly. And we want this to be an open conversation, not just between me and Laura, but we think it would be more beneficial for everyone if we talk to more people. So that's a way you can get involved. And thank you very much for giving us your time. The listener who gave us some feedback talked about debt. Laura and I are big Dave Ramsey fans. A lot of people who try to follow Dave Ramsey tell our friend who left us this comment, that they can't stick to the plan because it's boring. When I heard that word, I said, that's a good word, but I don't think that's exactly the right word. I think it comes down to contentedness. These people who are rabid consumers have restless hearts. 
and they're just pursuing something and they don't know what it is, but they think that next thing, they think getting that fancy car, renovating their house, getting biweekly manicures, getting the $300 haircut and biolage will make them happy. But these things never make them happy and they do it month after month and month and they wonder why they have no margin left, but at the same time they're sad. Don't get me wrong, I like to go get my nails done. <laughs> But that doesn't spark joy. And I use that word specifically, like really deep down at the end of the day, I lay in bed and I smile because I'm happy. I'm full. I'm complete. Yeah. Not like Marie Kondo, you threw away a blast full. Yeah. Sparks joy. Yeah. That's where I thought you were going with that. No. And that's not to say the way we live is always joyful or easy. No, it's either. not. It's not easy. And I feel jealousy a lot. I struggle with envy. And the other week I was, it was so pitiful. I cried because I was embarrassed about my lack of Christmas decorations because everyone on Instagram has super cute Christmas decorations. And I was, you know, kind of tallying up the price tags as I'm looking through the photos of their living room and their kitchen and their hallways and their lights outside. And I'm like, shoot, they spent almost a thousand dollars at Target just to decorate their living room. And I got jealous and I got envious because it was beautiful and it, they were creating this magic of Christmas for their kids and I don't want to miss out on that. But we're not choosing to spend our money like that right now, but that's hard. I know that everything on Instagram is fake. I know that everything on Facebook is fake. I know that it's, what do they call it? The highlight reel. Yeah. I can totally rationalize that, but it doesn't matter. My brain completely strokes out and I get jealous. When you see it. Yeah. And we've been, I mean, we have our tree up. Our toddler's super excited about Christmas cheer. We have the advent calendar on the fridge. We scratch off the new Bible verse every morning we got behind, but we caught up. And he's really excited. He's talked about Jesus's birthday. And so the magic is there, but it's hard. I was looking up some numbers when we decided that we were going to talk about debt. And as of May 2022, more than half of U.S. consumers are living paycheck to paycheck a 4% increase from May 2021. Meaning they don't have any wiggle room after they get paid, like it all goes to whatever bills. Mm-hmm. And three in 10 consumers making $250,000 or more, the top 5% of income earners, are living paycheck to paycheck. So three in 10 of people who are making 250, a quarter of a million dollars, are living paycheck to paycheck. Okay, then something's wrong. How is that... What? Anybody who listens to this is not going to invite us to their kids' birthday parties anymore because whenever we go to people's houses or we, you know, meet a new couple, we're like, so where do you think their money is going? <laughs> we're like, how are they making it? We went to a birthday party over the weekend and she had a beautiful house. Yeah. And I was looking at her Christmas decorations and I was like, okay, those are top tier Christmas decorations. You know, like this is my this is my measuring stick right now. We realize that most people dump their money into mortgage payments, car payments, childcare costs, and student loans. And that last one I can always forget about because I never had one. Yeah, we're privileged. No, but really, <laughs> we are. Our parents, and I don't know how intentional it was for you, we can talk about that, but for me, it was totally a God thing. I was stupid and didn't plan or think about it at all, really. Same. And I went to a school that was 
close to my parents' house because it had a good reputation. But it was private, right? Yeah. I went to a private Christian school and I got more than half of the tuition paid for with scholarships and grants. Jace is like a lot smarter than me. No. Just for everybody listening. And I worked the whole time I was in school. I finished. Did you work full time? Not full time, but what did more you do? Part time. I worked in the career services office. When was it that you worked at Hobby Lobby and cleaned in the up summers. The, the women's bathrooms? Yeah. In the Jace summers, talks about that a lot, cleaning up the women's bathrooms. Well, it was the most memorable part of Hobby Lobby. You would have 12 hour days unloading trucks, but then in the interim, you didn't yeah. really have to keep the men's room clean. There weren't many men coming through there. He's like, babe, I can watch childbirth. It's no problem for me. I used to clean up public bathrooms. <laughs> it's true. You ladies are nasty. So it's a lot different when you're in the birthing tub with your own wife. It's <laughs> nothing new. Yeah, I did that in the summer. And then I guess it just happened that my grandfather passed away right as I was entering college. And that helped my parents pay for the rest. So my parents paid for my school too. But I think it was not intentional. It was kind of accidental how it happened because... I just went to a state school, but I mean, it's still expensive. And my dad had a bunch of, he does HVAC, so he had a bunch of, so the EPA at the time was switching which type of Freon that they were going to allow in air conditioners because they decided that this new formula would be more green. And so what he did was he bought up a whole bunch of the older Freon recipe or whatever it's called. And he had a bunch of these tanks in the basement because they were higher efficiency and they fit people's older machines. So instead of having his customers buy new machines and pay for the new Freon, he would say, hey, but if you want, I can sell you this old stuff that I've got on hand, but I'm going to mark it up because it's like black market goods. Yeah, you can't get it anymore, but you can keep your old machine running longer. So he made a bunch of money selling this out-of-production Freon that he told me he paid for at least a couple of semesters of college. That's awesome. But I worked, too. I was a waitress, and I worked almost every day of the week. And I remember going to work. I worked Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. Yeah. And I couldn't go out if I was waitressing. I remember having a roommate during college, and I would get angry when I came home and I saw her sitting on her beanbag watching TV because I was like, ugh, I want to watch TV. But she said... I remember one day I was like, hey, do you want to go to Chipotle? And she says, I can't go to Chipotle. I don't have any money. And then she felt the need to like defend herself. And she said, I would have a job, but my mom says she doesn't want me to have a job because she wants me to focus on my studies. And I'm like, well, you're not focusing on your studies. You're sitting here watching TLC for like six hours a day. It's easy for us to take for granted that most people out there are still struggling with student loans of some kind. Yeah, it sounds generation. crippling. So we watched a documentary yeah. in order to prepare for this episode, and we watched Dave Ramsey's Borrowed Future. Yep, free on Amazon. And it's about the student loan crisis in America. I was trying to think about some other experience that I could compare it to, because you watch this documentary, and you're like, wow, and you want to place blame. And I'm trying to figure out where to place blame for the student loan crisis. The documentary made me feel like I should have walked away wanting to place blame on the government and the private student loan lenders, but that's not where I place ultimate blame. I blame the parents. I guess you could compare it to the obesity crisis in America, childhood obesity specifically. Oh. A 15-year-old girl knows that she's fat. She knows that being fat's unhealthy. She knows how to not be fat. But when you have parents that are not helping you, maybe they're even enabling you, 
And you didn't just get there on your own as a 15-year-old. You were probably fat when you were 12. You were probably fat when you were 10, when you were 8, when you were 6. Because you had parents who weren't feeding you nutritious, healthy food. They weren't making sure that you were getting the appropriate exercise. They weren't doing all of these things. They weren't taking care of you. And so now you wake up and you're a 15-year-old kid and you're fat. And yeah, you have some agency to take care of it yourself and lose the weight yourself. But you're still a victim. And so I compare that to the student loan crisis and I look at this 19-year-old turned 20-year-old, even turned 34-year-old who's still living with the after effects of being fat, but in this case, having this debt. And I'm like, yeah, you are the one with your name on the line, but I don't blame you ultimately. Where were your parents? Where were your grandparents? Where were your mentors? Where were the people who should have known better? Yeah, and it seems like it beyond just the parents not taking responsibility. It seems like the whole industry is geared to taking advantage of young and impressionable and arrogant teenagers going into the world. They push this message that the only way you're going to be successful is if you have this piece of paper that says you went to college for four years, or I guess it's six years now, is the average time it takes to complete. And so that's going to be really expensive. One of the things that I liked in the documentary was John Deloney, one of Dave Ramsey's employees, he used the comparative story about D-Day. And he said, the only reason D-Day worked is they went up to all of these young men and they said, nine out of 10 of you won't make it. And it's similar to student loans where they say, it'll be really expensive, but you might find a way to pay it back. And so there's like this, what do they call it? American arrogance, where the men at D-Day said, well, it sucks to be that guy. I'm not going to be the nine and 10. I'm going to be the one in 10 that survives Mm D-Day. And these student loan borrowers say, well, everybody else can't do it, but I'll figure out a way to pay this back. Yeah, I'm not going to end up as a barista. I'm going to be the one who makes the six-figure salary, and I'll be able to pay this off. No big deal. And if you would have asked me when I was 19 years old, hey, could you just, like, let's just pretend that you're making $60,000 a year. I think that's the average American salary. Can you tell me what your take-home pay would be every month? And so out of that take-home pay, can you go ahead and make an example of taxes taken out? Can you do your deductions? And then after that, why don't you go ahead and make me an example monthly budget? What is your household? What is your house going to cost? Your rent? What's your rent going to cost? And then your groceries. And then any other bills that you have? Your food? How much are you going to spend on food? Oh, by the way, are you married? Oh, by the way, do you have kids? If you would have asked me when I was 19, there's no way I would have been able to manage that task. No. And then they're expecting you to be able to do that And then handle the $700 payment. I place a lot of the blame on the fact that colleges are just set up to get as much money out of you as possible. They have these bloated administrative positions that arguably don't need to exist. They're not about what college should be for, which is training people to know things that they don't already know. I'm trying to think of the most, at the broadest level, a college, you can go full Hillsdale about it and say that college means partnership and the professors are supposed to partner with the students to achieve the higher goal of learning about the world and God and your place in society. But I think even at a fundamental level, even more prosaic colleges with less grand missions are there to give students the job skills they need, whether they be engineers or doctors or lawyers or whatever, just general knowledge of how to be an informed citizen. And that's not the message that I see so much in the 
student loan advertisements, the college push in general. It's more about sports and the college experience. Yeah, the college experience. What is that? So my parents talked about that a lot. I want you to go and have the college experience. And I know that they weren't talking about partying. At least my mom wasn't (laughs) because she didn't even do that herself. I think it just means I want you to go and learn how to be an adult, but with training wheels on. That is a very expensive way to go and learn how to be an adult. That part of life should happen at home, probably before you're 18 years old. You should know how to do your laundry and make yourself a meal and budget and all of that. That's a really good point. And so they're signing up for four years of finding yourself, figuring out how to be an adult, and then you pay that off for 30 years. So we're paying tens of thousands. Some people are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to learn how to grocery shop. And yeah, they're learning. They're getting a degree in the meantime. But what's really being sold to like 80 percent of people is this, quote, experience. Again, speaking for myself, the degree I got in undergrad has not led to anything except for the fact that I had to have a bachelor's degree to get into graduate school. One of the people in this documentary that we watched was an orthodontist, and his opening quote was, I'm 36 years old with a million dollars in student loans. And the documentary said there was a hundred other people like and that. With, with at least a million dollars in student loans. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the documentary, he cries. And I cried because this wasn't just some guy who slumped his way through life. Like, obviously, he's an orthodontist, so he studied hard. He was well put together. I mean, this was a grown man crying on TV, and that always makes me cry because it's like the severity of the situation is deep if there's a grown man crying. Yeah, he was saying he would have to pay thirty or $40,000 a month to get ahead of the interest payments on his loans. The political aspect of the documentary talked about how the student loan program started as like a very small federal government. Subsidy, yeah. And then it ballooned into what we know now. And the private student loan market in 2020 was valued at $130 billion. So how did we go from a small student loan program with like, what did it say, up to $1,000 in assistance? Yeah, it was capped at $1,000. To now we have people taking out a million dollars or more. Yeah, and I think the documentary made a plausible case that it's this mentality that I know was drilled into me and seems to still be prominent in society that the only way to succeed in America is to have at least a four-year degree. But I've seen even in my lifetime, it used to be that you could still make a decent living with just a high school diploma. And now it seems almost as if you need graduate education to have the equivalent of what that old four-year degree was. So then I makes me think of the word inflation. What is the definition of inflation, Jace? Too much money pursuing too few goods. Okay, so too many degrees pursuing too few jobs. And so now you have to have a college degree to do jobs that you never would have thought you would need college education. I didn't ever think that you needed to have a master's degree to be a high school English teacher. That seems absurd to me. And I don't know that you have to, but they incentivize it. Like you get higher pay. and Yeah. And that's this is a whole other topic for a whole other podcast. But high school teachers definitely don't get paid enough. And I'm wondering if there's like this, what you were talking about with colleges, there's that same phenomenon in elementary, middle and high school level, especially in public schools, is that there's like these massive administrations. 
where these administrators are making six-figure salaries mm -hmm. and they're doing what exactly? But the teachers, the people who are on the ground, in a lot of cases, babysitting people's kids all day because the parents at home aren't disciplining their own children. So that's what these teachers end up doing, at least in the lower grades. Yeah. They're making like thirty to $40,000 to start out. Right. And so I'm wondering what it is about education that results in this bloated administrative state. Well, you have a bunch of people with different ideas of how things should be and different ideas of how to change the way things are. And so then you have a bunch of different programs to try and implement those changes. And I'm being vague on purpose because there are any number of things you have. In Texas, the elementary school I went to was the one where most of the ESL kids went. And so you had tons of different approaches to how to integrate kids who didn't speak English at home and how to have class with native English speakers and not just native Spanish speakers, but any number of languages being in Houston. That's one. And then you have how to integrate special education. You have diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those And all of those would be separate offices with competing goals in some cases. And so you need administrators to work that out. You have different curriculum. So there was a big fight about a decade ago about whether to adopt common core standards. So all of those are going to need different administrators and each subject potentially has different factions about how to teach it. I mean, that can balloon as you're addressing all of the things that we're expecting our public schools to deal with now, especially as you're saying, they're not just there to teach kids how to read and write. They're there to raise them. Yeah. And there was one teacher in the documentary who said he had it was like $140,000 in loans with an almost a 14% interest rate. They interview him along with his wife. And at the end of some months, he has to go and donate plasma just to be able to pay their bills. Yeah, they were going to be $20 short for a month. So he did an extra donation. So he's literally selling his body. I don't mean to laugh, but like he's selling his body to pay his bills. He was saying they had already maxed out the credit cards and he's a coach as well. So he's already teaching his classes and then doing football practice and then going above and beyond that. So there's this pull between I really do believe that people are truly suffocated by these loans and they really are doing their best. And But then there's this other side of this where you're talking about the consumerism aspect of it. Right. And so people feel like you have to have all of these things, but they also have these student loans. That's a spectrum of where people fall. But I watched this video of a woman online and she said that she had to go to work and she was feeling disassociation a lot lately. She would just emotionally check out at the end of the day when she came home from her full time job because she never got to see her sons. Oh. She has two kids. It showed her coming home and making dinner, but it was what already 830. So both of her kids were already asleep. She never gets to see them. She says that she walks into her son's bedroom, puts her hand on his shoulder and says, who are you? I don't even know you. But the whole time she's making this very beautiful, aesthetically pleasing video online, I can identify what kind of makeup brushes she has. I know how much those cost. She's got HelloFresh on the counter. That ain't cheap. She's got beautiful hair. She's got beautiful clothes. She's got beautiful granite countertops. Now, I also believe that people are a victim to consumerism. So, like, I feel bad for her. My primary emotion that I felt watching that video was sorrow. Yeah, she feels trapped by the culture, thinking that she needs those things to be a good mom. If I could see her in person, I would like to have a conversation with her and ask, would you give up all of this to know your sons? Would you live in a tiny townhome? Would you live in a tiny apartment that's not cute for Instagram to know your sons? Yeah, and you got to think she'd say yes. 
So back to the documentary, sorry, sidetracked. It also said that 12 years after graduating, so when people are about, I did the math, 34 years old, let's say you graduate when you're 22, so 12 years after that when you're about 34 years old, students have only paid off about 34% of their loans, so barely a third. So let's talk about where most people are in their life when they're 34. The average person is probably married with at least one or two kids. And then they're also paying for college. Probably for those kids, too. I was going to say, for who? The parent or for their children? I mean, time flies so fast. Our toddler's only three, but I'm like, shoot, (laughs) how are we going to afford college if we're going to decide to fund that for him? And so I can't imagine having all of these. There's not enough wicks on the candle to burn all of the ends. Like, there's too many ends and not enough wicks. There's just, there's not enough money. And then in preparing this and thinking about the documentary, there was a Wall Street Journal article talking about government accountability office report that came out today that said over 90% of colleges either hide or just don't provide the net cost. Can we talk about the government accountability office just for a second? Like I am a number one super fan of the GAO. (laughs) Okay. Why is that? Okay. So the GAO and, but then also the inspector generals, like the, especially the special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction. When I was working in Congress, Thomas Massey one time was talking to him in a committee hearing and said, no one ever reads your reports, but I do. And I have the whole time and I love them. Thank you for your report. And I feel about just as nerdy towards the GAO. So the GAO is a research branch for Congress, and they do all of the heavy lifting when it talks about when policies were formed, do they work? They audit a lot of programs and services and provide these reports to lawmakers. Yeah. So in this one today, they're talking about financial aid letters that a bunch of colleges send out since 90 percent of them don't give families that an accurate figure for how much the net price of their schooling is going to be. So that's the amount that they're going to have to pay for tuition, fees, room, board, and other expenses after taking out scholarships and grants. They don't give them a final number. So how are they ever going to be able to plan to pay for it? It kind of reminds me on when we of when we went on a cruise for our honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And to try and find prices was very vague. Like now we bought an all-inclusive package, so we knew that all of the drinks would be free and that Our meals would mostly be paid for, but by the time that we got on the cruise, we realized that the meals that were paid for, what we ended up calling, we're never going on a cruise again, just to like make the long story short, (laughs) we're never going on a cruise again. The We called it the trough Mm -hmm. because the cafeteria meals, which were the ones that were included, it was like a school cafeteria and we're like these snobby foodie millennials and we're like, this is not exactly what I want like all day, every day for several days, but... They had those restaurants that weren't included in our meal package that served like, gosh, one was like a Brazilian steakhouse that was super good. We went there a bunch. Oh, yeah. But everything that we ate there was add-on. Worth it, but not included. When you go on the cruise and you end up going to the port, they drop you at the port, but everything you do at the port, you pay for. And by the way, the excursions, like the cruise line gives you some tips, but barely. You are on your own to figure out the excursions. So I was like on some janky .net websites trying to figure out which excursions we were going to go on. Mm -hmm. I sent some people money. I hoped that maybe when we were walking through the Bahamas, we would be able to find where we were supposed to meet at 9.30 a.m. to go on our excursion to this other island from this one port. They keep it shady on purpose. That's a perfect analogy to what we're talking about with the GAO because their conclusion was that 
a lot of families now are enrolling in schools that they end up not being able to afford. And they don't realize that until after they've signed. I think there are probably so many parents that are like, I really just want the best for my babies. I'm just going to go. I'm going to start shooting blind. Like, whatever it takes, I'll make it work. I'll figure it out. These are the after effects. Yeah. And all of that is happening in the context of this giant debate that's going on right now in politics about what to do about the student loan crisis. And so you have people mostly on the left saying a lot of these are federal student loans. Why doesn't the federal government just cancel them? If it's a rigged system and these people were lied to saying that they had to have a college degree to succeed and now they're stuck being the stereotypical barista or whatever, they're not fully employed in the careers that they thought they would get after getting these degrees, the government has a responsibility to fix the problem. And so now the Biden administration in August announced that they were going to cancel $10,000 in debt for people with public student loans who make up to $125,000. And they're not canceling up to 50000 like the progressives want just because... They're like, oh, we have to draw a line somewhere. Ostensibly, they're saying this is the moderate position. But they are cutting up to $20,000 for the poorest borrowers. So people who had Pell Grant qualify for up to $20,000. Okay, so you said the word. You said the poorest borrowers. There was a point that you and I both looked at each other during this documentary last night. And we said, okay, there is one solution to this that we have used for like all of time before now when evaluating whether we give someone a loan. And that is the risk assessment. Right. So when you go into a bank, it used to be that you dressed up in a suit, you wore your Sunday best, you walked into your bank where they knew you because it was a small town and you used to sit down and you used to say, here's my business plan for whatever loan that I want to take out and here's my plan for paying it off. And here are the assets and my proof of financial stability that I am good enough for you to give me this loan because I understand that you're taking a risk with me. But I want to assure that I'm capable of paying that off. Okay, so we don't do that anymore. But if we did, if we had true risk assessments of people, people would not be happy about that either. No, you'd get into all the same debates that we're having even still that there would be some kind of discrimination like you have in the housing arena. So with the Community Reinvestment Act, banks are prohibited from opening new branches unless they give out a certain amount of loans in the surrounding communities of their existing branches. And so there's tons of pushback and lobbying around exactly how they meet those standards. Going back to student loans, that problem is because we rely on debt to finance education. And so the left solution is, okay, why don't we just have publicly provided education that's free. So you don't have to have any of those potentially discriminatory factors coming into play because education's available for everyone. But then it goes back to that inflation point that we said earlier. If this is not if there's no scarcity placed on this object, the object in this case being a college degree, what value does it have? It doesn't. If we're going to have college, I think it should be to teach people to know things. Well, that's originally why we had K through 12. And how is that working out for us? Right. And so that's a broader debate. I think what we're going to focus on is probably what's going to happen with this current attempt to do student debt cancellation. There's a bunch of lawsuits. So Biden announced this program. Republicans were mad because Biden did it. And then other Republicans were mad because it seems like it's something that the president isn't allowed to do under his own authority. 
And so there was a group, I think it was five Republican states sued. And didn't they sue based on the grounds, well, part of the grounds that the interest that would have been paid on all of the loans, they were depending on those. And so now it's causing their state agencies financial harm that they won't be getting the interest otherwise paid on those loans that were being forgiven? Yeah, specifically in Missouri, there was some public student loan servicer that the state of Missouri uses to fund their public schools. And so they're missing out on whatever percentage of those funds would be going to, I guess, Mizzou. So, so nothing is so nothing is free, is what you're telling me. It's all entangled. That's right. Like money is real. Money is real. <laughs> and there's trade-offs in everything. And so even if we largely agree that this is a sympathetic group of people that deserve help and that we should be helping, some estimates are saying this loan cancellation program is going to end up costing $500 billion. And I don't even think that's on the high end. Yeah, that's going to have a lot of knock-on effects around the economy. Biden's student loan forgiveness is also dependent on there being a current COVID pandemic emergency, right? Yeah. So normally, so if you remember back to your schoolhouse rock, if there's a public policy problem, it's not the president who swoops in to solve it. We have... Or it's not supposed to be. Well, it is now. But my point is, you're supposed to have Congress debate about the best way to resolve the problem. They pass legislation. The president looks at it. And if he agrees with that approach to solving the problem, he signs it. And then if someone gets mad about that new law that the president signed, they can take it to the courts. And the courts can either agree to apply it in the dispute or they can say, oh, hey, looks like Congress and the president went beyond their constitutional duty. But that's not how it works now. No, it's the 2008 SNL skit, the ripoff of the I'm Just a Bill song, where he's like, where it's like, I'm just a bill. And then it's like, well, I'm an executive order. And he's like smoking a cigarette and he just kicks the bill down the stairs of Congress. (laughs) And this wasn't even an executive order. It was something that the Department of Education is doing. And so to get into the nitty gritty, because it matters here, the Department of Education is saying, well, look. Congress passed this law back in 2003 saying that veterans and people who were fighting in Iraq and first responders who were responding to 9-11, they shouldn't be on the hook for paying back their student loans when they're providing such a great service to our country. That's how it always starts, right? Right. This is going to make me a hater (laughs) towards the military. Obviously, I'm not, but it always starts with something during war and... Then it is used thereafter. Oh, we could just extend this a little bit. And I wrote about national emergencies for my newsletter service quite a bit. And the there's 134, at least over 130 ongoing national emergencies. And the oldest one of these dates back to the Iran hostage crisis. Yeah, back in the 70s. This bill was called the HEROES Act. And so apparently the Trump administration and then the Biden administration after them have used the HEROES Act to pause student loan payments, and to pause the accrual of interest. So even though people aren't paying back their student loans right now, they're also not gaining interest. The way the Biden administration set up this cancellation policy was saying, well, we still have an ongoing COVID national emergency. Even though the president said the pandemic is over. Yeah, he officially extended the emergency. So I don't know what that means, but officially he says COVID-19 is still pressing national threat that he has to have expanded executive authority to combat for sure the disease he's saying all of the economic turmoil caused by the disease not by the government's response to it 
necessitates them having to cancel these loans because if they don't do it, then these people are going to default and that would be worse. People are calling that a stretch and it made its way up to the Supreme Court last week and they've said that they're going to hear the case in February. So is this just going to go on and on until 2024 and Biden is just like Biden his time? Until until we get there. And this is like, well, I tried. The Republicans want to stop me, but he can campaign. That's like I tried on my student loan forgiveness campaign promise. He very well could. And I mean, that's why the left doesn't like him, because then he can with a straight face say, look, I tried. And these evil Republicans, they didn't want to give you the money. But at the same time, it's not all his fault. It goes back to we had this debate when Donald Trump declared a national emergency to reprogram funds that Congress didn't give him to build the wall. People at the time were saying, okay, you can do this. Whether or not you agree that the problem at the border is a national emergency or not, it sets a precedent for future administrations to declare other things or national emergencies to do things that their base wants. And it was an omnibus bill too, right? That passed and it got votes from both parties. So it wasn't just like Democrats rejecting his request for money for the wall. It was Democrats and Republicans saying, like, no, we're not going to give you this. When you think about that, that's a pretty significant shift of power. And he did it anyway. And that's still going through the court system. The fight, the litigation over that question is still working its way through. And so you're saying, will this last until 2024? Maybe. This is a side note and probably too nerdy for this podcast. But in the background is a debate over whether district court federal judges have the power to block things that presidents and agencies do because some people are saying they don't even have the authority to do that and so that's in the background of the supreme court case that's going to be heard in february can courts block programs like this from going into effect the problem being if they ostensibly illegal programs can go into effect while courts are deciding whether they're legal how are you going to undo it like if 500 billion dollars goes out and is forgiven for all these people. Are you going to make them pay it back? No. These myriad of lawsuits and like arguments between different levels of courts reminds me like, I think they're still doing this with Title 42, the immigration policy that Trump instituted during COVID. That's in court too. And this is just how policy is done anymore. And you just have presidents deciding what to do, but then it gets challenged in court. So then by the time that they actually leave office several years later, the policy that they said that they were going to institute never even happened. And so because you don't have Congress doing their job and like immigration, for example, even the immigrants are confused. I read interviews during Biden's early years and they said, well, we heard on TV that the border was open, that we were allowed to come in. But then you have Kamala Harris saying, do not come. And everyone's confused as to what's going on because <laughs> you laughed because you you played the Donald Trump meme in your head. Oh, I'm going to come. I did. It's juvenile, but I laughed. But your discussion reminded me of another thing that the Trump administration did after that horrible shooting. I think it's still the worst mass shooting in history at the Las Vegas Mandalay Bay Hotel. Oh, right. The thing that we know nothing about. Yeah. Probably a Fed. But after that, <laughs> Trump's ATF banned, quote unquote, bump stocks, even after Obama's ATF looked at the question and said, yeah, People forget that. People forget Trump's DOJ did more gun control than Obama's. It's the same kind of thing, just like the Biden administration is looking at the HEROES Act and saying, oh, yeah, that definitely applies to COVID and what we're doing with canceling student loans. Yeah, Trump today's today's 30-year-old millennials are definitely the same as the firefighters that went into the Twin Towers during 9-11. <laughs> exactly. 
So Trump's ATF said, Congress defined machine gun, and we're just going to pretend that it also means something else because we want to in this case. Something that makes a gun like a machine gun. Even when it doesn't make sense. And they're saying, yes, in this case, we're going to expand our authority, even though Congress didn't give it to us, to control this aspect of guns. And the Biden administration has expanded on that, too. His ban on so-called ghost guns and things that you can 3D print was modeled on Trump's ATF ban of bump stocks. So guns, student loans, and children. Our government is so big that we have people in Washington, D.C. regulating these areas of life to like such a micro level. But the people in Washington, D.C., the career bureaucrats, the people who have been there forever, don't have children, don't have student loans, and don't have guns. They don't have children because they have golden doodles instead. They don't have student loans because their parents were also from Washington, D.C. and funded their way to an Ivy League school. They have no idea what it is to struggle. And they don't have guns because they have staff to do that for them. Yeah, and they live in D.C. where it's impossible to have one anyway. Okay, rant over. Sorry. We're singing all day and you can't tame it. High tide, low tide, you know. Night time, the morning time, yeah. We're going strong, headed up down the river. Oh, Lord, I feel the reveling. I feel a change on the rise. 